0: We want to welcome you back to the Love First podcast, and if this is your first time with us, let me tell you about it. We are here to catalyze courageous conversations to revolutionize the way we love. If you are returning, thank you, and thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing, and you also know that we're returning for part two of a conversation about critical race theory, the church, and the gospel. Well, I want to start with a story. If you watch enough YouTube videos, I've kind of noticed a pattern about a certain genre of videos, and they kind of start like this, hey, watch this, and they kind of end with, oh, no, and somewhere in the middle, it's like, I don't think he ought to do that. And I get a feeling that this is kind of how we approach these conversations. It's almost like someone who has just gone out on a ledge and everyone is thinking, this is a bad idea. But the truth is that through the comfort we have in Christ and the unity we have in the Spirit, these conversations aren't bad ideas. They're actually great ideas because where do we have a better place to come together and discuss what will equip us to fulfill the mission of God? And that is why we have these conversations. Thank you for joining us this evening. questions questions can benefit from context can they not I want you to think about the following questions have you been drinking boy context would have a lot to do with that wouldn't it if you're running a marathon someone might be wondering if you're hydrating but if it's a police officer it's a different question expecting a different answer when someone asked will it work or someone asks, should we have done that? Or someone asks, why did you do that? You see, every question can benefit from context. And so, what are some of the components of context? So, we think about components of context like this. We're taught this when we're young. You know, it's kind of like, who, what, when, where, why, how? And each one of those questions is an invitation into context right? So when we look at the teachings and the life of Jesus, we kind of begin to apply that lens where we're looking into the story and we're thinking, okay, Jesus asked questions. What was the context? What was the the who, the what, the when, the where, the why? And all of that develops this kind of system of how we gain from Scripture all that we can possibly gain. So in Luke chapter 7, where we were looking last week, in regard to John the Baptist, Jesus asks this question three times, what did you go out to see? And as Jesus addresses that, what he helps people realize is, whatever your expectations were when you went out to see John influenced how you responded to John or rejected John. But now, in the exact same chapter, starting in the very next verse, we have another story which includes the question, Do you see? So let's read the story and see if through the who, what, when, where, why, and how, we can't find our way into the context of this vital question. So this is where the story goes. From here. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and then she wiped them with her hair and she kissed his feet and poured perfume on them. Well, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, huh, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Well, Jesus answered him, "Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 days wages. The other owed him 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. But then, watch this. Jesus turned toward the woman and spoke to Simon. Do you see this woman? There's our question. Now, try to imagine, just like the questions I articulated earlier, have you been drinking? Will it work? Should you have done that? If we just said to someone, did you see that woman? We might be thinking, in the store, on the sidewalk, was I supposed to see her? Was I supposed to be looking? But see, context is what tells us, no, 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 no. This isn't a general question. This is, in this context, Jesus is saying to Simon, here's what I'm wondering. Do you see this woman? Now, before we move on, I want you to consider something. Are you ahead of Jesus in the story? Are you a few steps ahead of Simon? Like, uh, what I mean is, are you thinking, ah, I know where Jesus is going with this? Which means that you recognize that the question has layers to it. Because what's the obvious answer? Hey, Simon, did you see this woman? What's Simon going to say? Well, of course I saw her. That's the problem. Yes, I saw the woman. Yes, I saw her walk in uninvited. Yes, I've watched the spectacle play out where she lost control. She's over there crying. She's using her hair to wipe your feet. She's kissing your feet, pouring perfume on them. Of course I see it. And Simon says, And not only that, but I saw your response. And that's problematic as well. So, When Jesus says to Simon, do you see the woman? We, as the reader, we're already ahead of the story, which means that we see layers in the story because Jesus isn't asking, did you see the woman physically with your eyes connected to your optic nerve, connected to your brain? What Jesus is asking is, how? How did you see this woman? In what context did you see this woman? What formed the way that you see this woman? How did this woman become categorically reduced from a human in your town to a sinful woman that doesn't belong at your house? See, we know that Jesus is aiming for more with the question. Well, Jesus says, I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with a hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus spoke to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests begin to say among themselves, well, who is this who, who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So last week, as we opened this discussion about critical race theory, the church, and the gospel, one of the things we recognized in the story previous in the chapter about John the Baptist is when we look at theory in general, critical theory and critical race theory, what we recognize is Jesus could even ask us, well, what did you go see? What did you go to see? And we could say, well, I saw this theory, and as I broke down the theory, I could see the parts of it that I don't agree with. I could see the parts that I think don't match biblical expectations, so on and so forth. I could see all of that, right? And Jesus might say, well, do you remember the story in Luke 7? Yes. You know the story where there was more to see than just what you went to see? Yes. Well, I wonder if this is the time to apply that. I wonder if this is the time to remember that when I look at anything, my worldview isn't what I'm looking at. It's the lens through which I'm looking at it. And questions invite us into context. Now, in the story in Scripture, I want you to think of three ways that context could impact Simon, right? So Jesus says to Simon, Simon, do you, do you see this woman? And Simon could have said, ah, yep, yep, I missed that. My mind was all wrapped around other things, Lord. I miss that and just move on, right? Or a second response could have been a little slower, something like this. Hmm. All right, Lord, I I realize that there's a difference between the way you see her and the way I see her, which obviously works its way out, in a difference between the way you treated her and the way I treat her. Lord, I yes, I'm willing to think about that, Lord, I mean, since you've brought it up and you've pointed it out, yeah, I guess I need to take another look at that. There's a third way Simon could respond, and Simon could just say something like, whoops, Or he could just say, uh, hey, sorry about that. He could look at the lady. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. He could look at Jesus. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. He could look at his guests and say, I am so sorry. I know the Bible better than this. I know God better than this. Two weeks ago in the podcast, we talked about Jonah. I know the compassionate God better than this. And, And Simon could have just said, I'm sorry. I messed up. But you notice he doesn't choose any of the three. In fact, we're left hanging because at the end of the story, the one who has been transformed is the woman. The people that are now asking the right questions are the guests. But we don't know what happened to Simon. Did Simon stay stuck? Did he think to himself, no, Jesus this isn't just evidence that she's a sinner. This gives proof positive that you don't know what you're doing. And anyone that thinks that this woman can be forgiven is no preacher to me. Anyone that thinks that a sinful woman like this belongs at a dinner like the one I'm offering, you're no prophet to me. And it's kind of that early version of cancel culture. Jesus. If you see good in this woman, I don't see good in you. So when you think about how cancel culture functions, it's kind of like in relation to critical race theory. It's like, if you see anything positive in critical race theory, if I hear you say anything positive about critical race theory, if you want me to consider systemic racism, then anyone that sees anything positive in that I don't see anything positive in you. Anyone that thinks we could find that as a helpful resource in some way, you are no longer a faithful voice that I want to hear. And that is how cancel culture functions. So basically, Simon looks at Jesus and says, if you see good in that woman, I no longer see good in you. End of conversation. But we know from Scripture that that's not the end of the conversation. And we've been invited not to follow Simon the Pharisee, but to follow Jesus. So, how do we know if our hearts are kind of in quest mode? Question mode. Because the questions in context, you know, do you see this woman? These questions help us grow in Christ. So, how do we know if we're in quest mode? So, one way to know is anticipatory we can think to ourselves, you know what? I wonder what Jesus will teach me the next time I go to Scripture. I wonder what the Holy Spirit has in store for me the next time I study a familiar story in Scripture. Or, because of experience, you could just say ahead of time, I already know there's more. I've been following Jesus long enough. I've followed His teachings long enough. I've been studying Scripture long enough that I know when I open the book of life, I know I'm going to learn something more than the last time I opened that book. Or you might say to yourself, I now understand that my whole walk with Jesus is a walk into the fuller story of God, layer by layer, learning the greater narrative of God at work in my life and God at work in the world. When we come to Scripture that way, it prepares us to come to each other with greater humility. When we know that we don't stand on Scripture, we stand under Scripture. When we recognize that we will always be learning more, then we come to Scripture with a humility that prepares us to approach each other with humility. And there's great blessing in that because you see, With the context of this passage, we are now open to more grace and growth, right? So we have grace for the incomplete steps. Jesus looks at this woman, and Jesus just allows this woman to use whatever steps she has to move her closer to God. So if that means coming uninvited, if it means crying at His feet, wiping His feet with her hair, kissing His feet— Whatever that means, Jesus said every one of those steps is a step toward God, I'm good with it, and Jesus can affirm her growth in grace. Let me say that again, He can affirm her growth in grace. So what that prepares us to do is it prepares us to affirm growth in each other with grace. So when someone brings to us an idea that shows they're leaning into God, shows they're leaning into what God requires, and demonstrates a heart that wants to do the will of God, rather than setting up a battle line like Simon the Pharisee, would we not set up a growth track like Jesus that says to the woman, you started here. By the end of the story, you're moving forward There, Jesus demonstrates that affirming growth with grace helps people move toward God. And is that not what we want? But as we take this story a little bit further, we note that Jesus is challenging the lens through which we see the world. And now what I want us to do is think, Well, how do we make sure that that's a good lens? How do we refine the lens with which we look at Scripture, with which we look at each other, and with which we look at theory? How do we refine that lens so that it equips us to do the will of God? Well, let's look at this. I want you to take take, take notes with me because I'd like you to think about six steps to creating a lens through which we can see Scripture, each other, and theory in a way that equips us to do the will of God. First, commit to God's missional commitments. Commit to God's missional commitments. You see, in this story, had Simon stayed on track with God, he would be happy when any person who's struggling comes into the dinner because Simon would see that as an opportunity to help them get closer to God. So Simon is not keeping the missional commitments of God, but Jesus is. So commit to the missional commitments of God. Number two, and this reflects where we were last week, but I want to bring it back up and bring us up to speed. Glean, glean every beneficial idea from every helpful resource, even if the entirety of the theory, source, or movement Cannot be validated. I'll say that again. Glean. Glean every beneficial idea from every helpful resource, even if the entirety of the theory, source, or movement cannot be validated. So I know we don't use the word gleaning very often because it's an agricultural term that is more thought of in in farming, but the word glean literally means to harvest the good and leave behind the waste. In biblical terms, it's harvesting the grain and leaving behind the chaff. Okay? So when we think about theories, then let's think about gleaning. What that would mean is, is that we would glean every beneficial idea from every helpful resource, even if the entirety of the theory, the source, or the movement cannot be validated. That's gleaning. When we glean every helpful idea that will equip us to effectively fulfill the will of God, that earnestness of our hearts must feel to God like that woman's kisses felt to the feet of Jesus. Glean. Step three. We must rise above binary configuration. Oftentimes, people will look at sources, theories, movements, and so on, and they'll say, is it biblical or unbiblical? Is it all acceptable or wholly unacceptable? Is it like from a conservative mindset or a liberal mindset? So what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to think of it in binary configurations, which either validates all of it or invalidates all of it. You understand that theory pushes back against binary configurations like that. That is why we talk about practicing medicine, because we realize that as we have progressed through the ages in our understanding of medicine, some theories are proven to be true. Some are proven to have been partially true. Some actually help us get to a better theory, but if we find one that doesn't hold up, then we discard it, but that doesn't mean that we completely invalidate the good parts of it, right? So we resist binary configuration of every single source and every single resource or movement that can help equip us to do the will of God. Number four, we value quantitative and qualitative data. Now, this is important, because oftentimes people will just say, well, the statistics prove this, and the statistics reveal that, and someone else says, well, you realize that hasn't been my experience. And sometimes what we just have to accept is is that the way that a study is set up yields a certain kind of statistics, but it doesn't actually yield the data on the entire situation. Let me illustrate it this way. If you go to the doctor because you feel horrible and the doctor takes your temperature and says, your temperature is 98.6, it's normal, so you are not sick. You might say to the doctor, my temperature might be normal, but I am sick. Now, Taking the temperature is important, right? Because it's an important important data point in health. But what we realize is temperature doesn't measure everything. So the fact that one data point is normal doesn't mean that the patient isn't sick. It means that we need to look at other data to determine what's happening. It is an invitation into other data. So a good doctor starts saying things like this. Tell me about it. Tell me what you feel. And most of us who are not doctors don't start talking in medical terms. We just start describing our experience. Well, it kind of hurts here, and I woke up with this, and I felt kind of that. So now what the doctor is doing is assessing our health with both quantitative and qualitative data. One of the unjust criticisms of critical race theory is that it uses experience and narrative as one of the ways to investigate what what is behind the negative race interaction in our country. So some people are saying, well, that just abandons reason and it abandons data and it abandons, you know, the, the steady exploration of the problem. Well, actually, no, it doesn't because the fact that we would include narrative and data is how you go to the doctor when you're sick. The doctor seeks the data that can be measured and the data that needs to be described. Critical race theory would suggest that if you're not including the data that can only be gathered through narrative, you're not getting the full story, and therefore the diagnosis is incorrect or incomplete. So rather than pitting quantitative data and qualitative data against each other, let's bring them together to best equip us to do the will of God. Number five, Engage dialogue in the context of connection. Debate, for the believer, does not substitute for oneness. Choose dialogue in love rather than debate as a way to establish superiority. Choose dialogue in connection. And number six, and this is a tough one, decide that we want maximum impact for the kingdom of God and that we are willing to equip ourselves for it. That means that it will be difficult. And that means that we will study things that we'll have to be discerning about. It means that we'll have to work through theories and think that part is beneficial, that part aligns with Christ, but maybe this part doesn't. And then we'll have to listen to someone else push back on that and say, you know, I don't know. I think that part does have something to say. And those conversations require more time with each other, more open with openness with each other, more humility toward each other. We resist the cancel culture, and we literally live life together. And is that not what Christ did when he came to this earth? He lived life with us so that we could be redeemed into the full self that God desires for us. You see, Simon was ready. Simon the Pharisee, was ready to cap that woman's growth and to cancel her spiritual future. Wow! And by invalidating her, he also invalidated Jesus. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't invalidate either one of them? Jesus doesn't invalidate Simon. He wants Simon to grow out of this and make it, but he doesn't invalidate the woman. He wants her to grow out of it and make it. That's why he says, you're both debtors. You're both in debt to God. And sure, Simon, it looks to you like you owe less because you've lived a life differently than hers. But at the end of the day, neither one of you could pay God for what you need. Neither one of you could buy your way in. You both need God. And I'm here to help you with that. He doesn't cancel either one of them. You see, God wants both Simon and the woman to be equipped to live into the life God has for them. So what do we do with all of this? Where do we go from here? I mean, when conversations about politics come up in relationship to the church and the gospel, what about theories? What about research? What about books and authors and TED Talks and memes and Facebook posts? Well, some of us, like Simon would use them as a way to divide people. Some people might even use them to judge whether or not someone is competent, whether or not someone is a Christian. Some might use them to recruit people to their church or away from another church. Some might use them to comfort themselves. Some might use them for escape. And some might just use them to hide from their own debt of sin. And these debates, rather than fulfilling the will of God, actually puts us away from the will of God. But God offers something different. So when we think of this theory, critical race theory, I find this discussion instructive, but not new, helpful, but not groundbreaking. I hear people who, without nuance, give either full throated support or uncompromised rejection. And that is to a theory. What seems interesting to me is I wonder if theories are that concrete anyway. Are they that rigid? Are theories that fully formed and devoid of the necessity and capacity to evolve and change that we would literally, without compromise or without openness, fully support or fully reject? If we frame the question, is it biblical or unbiblical? we would say yes, and you say to which, and we say to both. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, if you mean unbiblical, do you mean that we have a way of defining race today, what some researchers call color-identified or color-coded racism? Well, that did not exist in biblical times. Some of the people that you can read on this that have done the most extensive work would be uh, Frank Snowden, great researcher of the 20th century and held up by all who research these things as kind of a pioneer and and a founder of these studies. Uh, You could look at Benjamin Isaac, who takes the exact same data that Frank Snowden works from, but comes to some slightly different nuances concerning race in biblical times and in antiquity. You could also look at George Fredrickson, who moves the the needle in understanding how color-coded racism came into being. Or you could read Ibram Kendi, a young historian who is among us right now writing epic work on this, who follows along in the footsteps of George Fredrickson, but applies it in much deeper ways to the American context. What does this say? What do they all agree with? That color-coded racism as we experience it in the United States of America was unknown in biblical times. So in that form, it's unbiblical. But you do realize that in other ways, it's biblical. You say, well, how can that be? How can it be unbiblical and biblical? Well, let's illustrate it this way. When you look back at the story of Luke chapter 7, what do you see? When you read it, what do you see? You say, well, I see Jesus interacting and... I see a power dynamic at work. You've got this woman who has a bad reputation and she feels like she doesn't even belong. She's crying. She's on her knees. She's behind everyone. Uh, You see Simon, you know, the man who's in charge of everything and has the power, right? And he gets it wrong and Jesus gets it right. And there's lessons in it for us about grace and mercy. Well, you do realize all of that is true. I mean, you realize all of that is true. But now a question we might ask is, well, why is it in the Bible? Because, as John tells us, you know, John 20, 30 and 31, where it says many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John, what are you saying? John says at the end of his gospel, if everything Jesus did was written down, the whole world wouldn't contain the books. So we know, oh, okay, so not everything Jesus did is in the Bible, but this one is. So why this one? What are we supposed to gain from the story? Are we just supposed to watch it like television and Simon is kind of a character, Jesus is a character, the woman is a character, it's like a television show? Or are we actually supposed to see ourselves in that story? Ah, see, we know we're supposed to see ourselves in that story. This is supposed to speak to us. The Apostle Paul, remember, he asked the question, you know, who is this for? Well, these were written down to instruct us and encourage us upon whom the end of the ages have come. This is written for us. And then you say, but yeah, but is there another question? Well, yeah, there's another question there. And that is, if it's in the book and the story of God is supposed to instruct the people of God on how to live, then this isn't just a story for me to figure out, okay, am I the woman in this story? Am I Jesus in the story? Am I Simon the Pharisee in the story? Am I one of the guests in the story? We need to be asking, what is the banquet in society? And who does Simon represent in society? And what structures is Simon working out of that prepared him to look at that woman and just invalidate her and in doing so invalidate Jesus? And what is Jesus pushing back against when he says to Simon, what do you see? How do you see it? What formed your eyesight to see someone the way you see that woman? Hey, to the woman, what makes you think that you're not worth anything? I know you hope you're worth something, but society has spoken into your life in such a way that society said you're not worth anything. But God still believes you're worth something. So the story speaks at all these different levels, and we already know that, don't we? Right? So the concept of critical theory isn't critical as in picking apart something or looking down on something to make a negative assessment. Critical theory means let's peel back the layers, let's open it up, let's explore, 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 and keep exploring layer by layer by layer so that we can see all that God has for us to learn. So let's imagine another way of considering this. One of the favorite hymns I remember growing up with had this question in it. Why did? my Savior come to earth? And to the humble go. Why did he choose a lowly birth? Do you remember that song? If you don't, it's beautiful. Look it up, look it up and listen to a beautiful rendition of it. You say, well, Don, you gave us three questions. I know, I know. So let me go back through them. So here's how the song goes. Why? Why did my Savior come to earth? How many of you are thinking, okay, that qualifies as like one of the giant questions of history. You're right. And why to the humble did he go? So to Mary and Joseph and then to this woman in Luke 7. Hmm, It's a good question. Oh, there was a third question. Why did he choose a lowly birth? Which suggests what? He could have chosen something else. So that really resonates with us, doesn't it? That that God was in charge of this process of incarnation, and God could have chosen multiple ways to come to earth, but why did he choose a lowly birth? Hmm. Well, there's an answer in the song. Because he loved us so. So in the love of God, we're supposed to explore the incarnation of God in Christ Jesus. Yes. So we go back to Luke chapter 1, and we study this story. And the story in Luke is very unique. And it's a theme that goes throughout the gospel as we see. Watch this. So the story of Luke doesn't start with the genealogy like Matthew. It doesn't start with the calling of the disciples like Mark. It doesn't start in the beginning before time, like John. The story in the Gospel of Luke starts with the birth of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's parents are of a priestly family. And John the Baptist's father, though a good and righteous man, he doesn't believe the angel's message. And for that reason, he is not able to speak God closes his mouth, makes him mute, and he is unable to say anything until his son is born. But Jesus, that's the next story. Jesus is born to this day laborer carpenter and his young wife. And rather than resisting or not believing, she just says, I'm your servant. Let it be as you have said. And God opens her mouth, and she shares that beautiful song we know as the Magnificat. So in that story that launches the Gospel of Luke, we have a person who, as far as the way society functions, he's at the top of the heap. But when he doesn't believe the ways of God, he is silenced. Then we have a woman that's at the bottom of the heap, but she does the believe, of, believe the wisdom of God and the work of God and the Word of God, and she is given voice. And isn't that how the gospel of Luke unfolds? At every stage, this is how it unfolds. There's a woman. She's been bleeding for years. She just wants to touch the fringe of Jesus' garment. That's it. Just the fringe. But Jesus says, oh no, stop the crowd. Stop the movement. Stop everything. And the Bible says that this woman, noticing she couldn't go unnoticed, seeing she couldn't go unseen. And who did that for? Jesus. In this story, is it Simon the Pharisee or is it the woman that God elevates? What about the story of the prodigal son? Is it the older brother that stayed at home or is the younger brother that's struggling to come home in repentance? What about the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee that go to the temple to pray? One of them says, I'm glad I'm not like a guy like that. The other one says, I can't stand the fact that I've been a guy like me. That's the guy that's elevated. And that's the guy that goes home justified. You see the entire story Of the book of Luke tells a narrative about the dynamics of power in society and how the world creates a certain dynamic that places some people here and some people here, that puts some people on the inside and some people on the outside, says to some people, You get a front row seat, says to other people, A back row seat or outside. And God upends all of that. And the story of the book of Luke includes story after story after story. He includes Samaritans, hated in society, but heroes to God. So I got a question for you. Aren't we thankful that people equip us to see more than just, that's an interesting story in the gospel, to a narrative that reveals to us how God recreates the world through Jesus Christ. We actually love the benefit that critical thinking brings to our Bible study because it helps us mine out of scripture the depth of the riches that are promised to us. We are thankful to be equipped in critical thinking. And we we not only bless it, but we sing it. We want people to engage the questions. Why did he come to earth? and to the humble go? Why Why choose a lowly birth? We want people to ask questions like that. We don't want the manger to just be a piece of furniture in the annual Christmas play. We want the manger to speak about the birthing and the incubating of a new humanity that brings justice and good news to everyone. Right? You see, we already love critical thinking, and we're already blessed by it. And we already recognize that it's not the end-all be-all. It's a tool that we use to equip us for our fullest life in Christ. So if you're someone right now who's listening to this, you might be having a hard time with this. You might be struggling. You might have already heard someone say, you know, critical race theory is worthless or it's unbiblical or anyone that talks about it is not a, a person of truth. Or if you know, your church leadership talks about oppres- systems of oppression or, or, or systemic racism, just quit listening. They're not even talking gospel. I think you can realize now it's not as simple as that. And just like it's not right for someone to cancel these faithful voices over here, it wouldn't be right for us to cancel faithful voices over here. Because that's not what's going to get us down the road in fulfilling the mission of God. What will get us down the road in fulfilling the mission of God is honing that lens so that when Jesus says, what did you see? We can say, I'm still seeing. Because of you, I'm still seeing, Lord. Because I know there's more to see whenever you're leading. I'm looking for what you want me to see. You see, we care about justice. We care about equity. We know that certain things in our world, both personal and systemic, get in the way of justice Inequity. We see it in our personal relationships. We see it in policy. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, the incarnation of God for the sake of the world, God is at work to redeem his world, to reconcile us to God and to each other, and to recreate the world in his image. Our longing is to join Jesus in this work. Jesus calls us to engage in these conversations not to name something, but to enact something. Getting caught up in how something is named or described and then getting distracted into debates allows us the freedom to imagine that we're accomplishing God's will in the argument, when in reality, we may be just being seduced by the power and intrigue of original thought, or being on a winning team, or shooting down someone or something that makes us uncomfortable. We need to learn how to talk about and to listen to stories about personal and systemic struggles without accusing someone of sounding a dog whistle or without accusing someone of abandoning the gospel and personal accountability. Now, for me personally, I've come to see the value in all of this. I've come to see the limitations in all of this. In my doctoral work and working through my dissertation, I have engaged critical theory and critical race theory. And I have found the blessings in it and come across the limitations of it. So I'm absolutely going to glean, right? I want to be equipped, and I want to do the best work that I can for God and His mission. So I'm going to glean what's good, and I'll recognize the limitations. I also realize that what Satan wants to do in any conversation is to divide us and distract us so that people are not blessed fully with the impact of the gospel, So, when I use these resources as a tool, I am doing it to make sure I stay on track with the mission. Thank you so much for joining us for the Love First podcast. I ask you to like, subscribe, and share. Share this with your friends, and let's commit to being equipped for the conversations that will revolutionize the way we love. Love first, I know. My first. My soul burns and my soul Lord, take control.